Hello and welcome to the Pharma Letter podcast. With all signs pointing to an M&A boom in late 2021 and throughout 2022, our guest today will provide valuable insight into current and emerging trends in the biotech investing landscape. I'm Simon Wentworth, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Lance Miner, Principal and National Co-Leader of the Life Sciences Practice at BDO, a global business intelligence firm. With the coronavirus pandemic continuing to cast its shadow across the life sciences, we'll look at how external factors such as supply chain disruption and clinical trial delays could explain a recent slowdown in research spending. We'll also discuss the likely impact of record high valuations for drug development startups, including what that might mean for future spending on research and development. Co-author of BDO's Summer 2021 Biotech Brief, Lance will explain how more cash on hand and increased debt could shape the sector in the coming period. So I think the the biotech brief is something which would be of great interest to a lot of our readers, and I'm hoping that today we'll be able to unpick some of the themes and talk in a little bit more detail about um, some of the findings in your research. Um, so perhaps just to kick off, you can talk a little bit about last year's research um, where you found that R&D spending was outpacing revenue. Can you say a little bit about um, why that was? Well, in a word, it's opportunity. Uh, two main things, the low cost of debt and the explosion of new technology. Uh, you know, Well, over the past 30 years, um, R&D spend uh, to revenue has grown a bit each year. Uh, from the mid-teens as a percentage of revenue to uh, about 20, 22% today. You know, it's typical 5% growth uh, in in uh, revenue in the biotech space. Our, uh, our cohort in, in the NASDAQ index, uh, you know, there's been a, it may be a bit of an, out, an outlier across the industry, even though we expect it to be representative. Uh, there are certainly more smaller companies uh, we saw in 2020 uh, just a huge influx of new entrants to uh, to the Nasdaq. I think it was a, a record 84. So that may that may be shifting a little bit of the um, the difference in revenue versus R and D spend. Right, and your your research now suggests that the the trend has started to reverse for medium and large companies. Is that something that you can say a bit more about? Yeah, it's interesting. The um, for larger companies, I don't think this is um, so much a, as a trend as an artifact. As I was saying about the the index being representative of smaller companies, I think that the large companies have seen a relatively flat debt to equity or 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 revenue um it fluctuates a little bit but it's essentially been flat over the last 10 years and general r d spend much like i was saying uh, over the past 30 has been increasing at that at that steady rate so i don't i don't think that um large companies are necessarily um in any different position as far as taking advantage of new technology um, or or any less uh, or more efficient in, in their R&D spend, uh, which may affect uh, their ability to be productive relative to their revenue. Right. Obviously, the sort of big theme or the big 
event in the background at the moment is the pandemic. We've seen a, a, a number of developers have delayed initiation of clinical trials. We've seen difficulties in clinical trial enrollment. As the pandemic hopefully starts to recede in the coming months and quarters, um, do, do you expect a rebound in, in R&D spending? For, the, for large companies, I don't expect there to be any major shift in an R&D span, I expect it to continue with that that trend over the past 30 years. Similarly, for um, for the smaller companies, I, I, I think it'll continue to be significant growth, uh, particularly taking advantage of, of new innovation with uh, mRNA coming onto the market, you know, it, there have been decades of development uh, in that space with only two notable successes. Uh, I think that we'll see uh, both small and large pharma uh, biotechs investing heavily uh, in that space. You know, we, we've seen that uh, there's been tremendous uh, uptake in both CAR-T and gene therapy and you know outside of the mrna space and outside of covid uh, i think that that trend will will continue to uh, accelerate you know last year uh, the fda had uh, record breaking uh, 53 drug approvals versus 48 the year before so even though covid has slowed some uh, clinical trials i think the the industry has just been incredibly innovative in keeping clinical trials running uh, when people are reluctant or told to avoid hospitals except for emergencies. Um, a rebound in clinical trials is inevitable. Of course, the pipeline technological risks will really dictate whether the, the post-COVID clinical trial bounce translates in, into new medicines. Um, so that's, uh, you know, I would say as a, as a whole, you know, I think the uh, the industry did see not only a reduction in, uh, you know, the startups of new clinical trials and, and slowing of how those were rolled out. Um, we, they would also saw a reduction in some of the core hospital administered uh, medicines as people were reluctant to, to go in for their um, basic health needs. One aspect of your research was looking at um, revenues for NASDAQ listed biotechs. You've noted an average increase of 9% in 2020. Um, how do you anticipate that the companies will use this extra money? Well, I think it really goes back to um, the first question, opportunity. Uh, there'll be uh, uh, more investments in R&D on all the new technology, um, cell and gene therapy, mRNA, etc. Uh, you know, capital expenses. Uh, I think that we have seen um, the challenges in capacity in CDMOs and CMOs and innovator companies as they look to uh, build um, a growing need for clinical trial material as well as commercial material uh, through some of BDO's um, research around the world's global protein production capacity, we've actually seen uh, tremendous growth in uh, just the past year of, of investments in, in additional capacity. I think we'll see that continue. Um, you know, 
with with new breakthroughs it's much like where the industry was in the early 2000s with um a, a tremendous innovation within the monoclonal antibody space um, rich pipelines and then you saw that those significant investments in, in monoclonal capacity and i think we'll begin to see the same types of investments and we saw news um, feeds over the past year of of multi-hundred million dollar investments uh, in the cell and gene therapy space. Right. Another aspect of your research was looking at debt, and you've noticed that biotech companies took on significantly more debt in 2020 compared with 2019. I'm just wondering, you know, why is that, first of all? And um, is that trend likely to continue? And what might be the medium term sort of consequences of that? Yeah, I think the biotech industry as a whole has, has largely been highly leveraged. Um, you know, near-term consequences, maybe more capacity expansion, more R&D, as, as we were just discussing. Um, mid-term to long-term, you know, we may see that if this new bolus of R&D doesn't yield new products, uh, that expansion of capacity may go unused. And we saw this in, in the early 2000s as there was this um, uh, sort of embarrassment of riches where pipelines uh, didn't materialize as, as quickly as expected and capacity improvements, improvements in throughput through existing capacity uh, increased. For example, the industry had protein yields of a half a gram per liter of capacity uh, that now regularly get 10 times that. So it's a, uh, it's, it's a phenomenon that we'll have to, to, to track. Just talking about valuations of companies, um, we've noted record high valuations for drug development startups. And how might that shape the biotech landscape in the medium term? Well, biotech you know, continues to attract uh, talent. Um, you know, with these types of valuations, you know, when you have companies like Novavax that were, uh, you know, notably had a major jump in, in their valuation. You know that uh, it's it's a great way to draw you know good talent uh, to your company. Over the past few years, it's been highly competitive recruiting world in biotech, uh, but now even more so as all industries face uh, recruiting challenges. Certainly, this uh, shift in in uh, makes M and A more expensive. You know, but big pharma has been pursuing you know very creative deals for co-development, co-marketing agreements uh, to spread out their risk and and wait to see where they should put their investments. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about the legislative environment. Um, we've seen obviously there's a new administration in the U.S. We've seen that um, Senate Democrats have introduced this drug uh, pricing cap legislation. What might the effect be? of that legislation in particular, and in just in general, talking about the investment climate in the biotech sector, um, are people sort of worried about what's coming down the line and how might it affect pricing and other strategic decisions? Yeah, well, I think the, uh, the, the valuations sort of speak for how the, the in investment world uh, sees uh, this legislation. Or, you know, the, uh, the HR3, that the drug pricing bill, if, if we're referring to the same um, uh, bill, I believe the Congressional Budget Office, um, as of an August 9th report, shows about a $50 billion reduction uh, in, um, you know, through, through this measure. My understanding, this is less than 10% trim of the total Medicare uh, costs, 
so while it, it, it appears to affect the high cost drugs, um, particularly for rare diseases, which is very unfortunate. Uh, however, I think there are some creative pricing efforts that we've seen in the market uh, that will allow these essential medicines to continue to be profitable and, and we continue to see investments in them. That's uh, certainly my hope. And just in general, comparing you know this administration with the previous administration, is there a general sense that um, the industry is perhaps more optimistic, that the, the new administration is perhaps more sympathetic or less sympathetic? Yeah, I, I think that the, um, the administration has been <clears throat> vocal about wanting to um, improve competition um, and, you know, through um, some of its efforts uh, around the FTC, but also improving uh, innovation is certainly more science minded than some administrations, you know, but having been in the industry, you know, I, for years, the uh, the pricing constraints have um, have come and gone with um, the early pricing discussions around um, consolidation of healthcare cost uh, in the late 90s. We, the industry actually saw an increase in uptake of of medical use, you know, uh, and what we've seen now is that um, the industry is you know, really developing some unique medicines. I think that the uh, the success that the industry has had with um, developing novel vaccine uh, for prevention as well as novel COVID treatments for therapeutic uh, measures um, has been very well received. Billions of dollars have been invested in this and uh, I would expect that's an indication, along with the, the high valuations, you know, that the, the investors see that uh, this is a, a great a great place to be putting their money. Great. Um, perhaps we could just talk a little bit about um, M&A activity. We've seen a slight slowing uh, in 2020. Do you expect that to pick up? Is that sort of part of the normal fluctuations in mergers and acquisitions, or perhaps that's connected with the pandemic? And would you expect that to pick up in the coming period? Yes, I would. I um, would guess that that was a, a, a largely in effect because of the pandemic. We saw about a 50% decrease in deals versus 2019. Uh, so that doesn't seem like normal fluctuation. However, with capital, with the capital that's now available uh, to the industry, uh, we'd expect a rebound now that COVID supply issues have largely gotten under control. Um, I think that. Uh, the industry has, has largely figured out how to how to keep the lights on and keep uh, the business rolling. For life science as a whole, we've already seen a big jump in deals uh, and uh, maintaining values in the first half of 2021, uh, with it being slightly up over 20 the first half of 2019, and up 400% over the first half of 2020. Not that that's a great year to compare, but it does indicate that. Uh, but 2021 will be an overall uh, great year for, for M&A. On this subject, we've seen that the Federal Trade Commission has a new uh, multilateral working group looking into M&A activity. And do you have any thoughts on when we might know the outcome of that working group and how it might change the environment? Yeah, well, I don't know um, when that working group is is expected to announce any of its uh, research they have been um noting that 
you know, as I was saying before, the administration is interested in both innovation and managing competition. If there's an impact in, in deals, we haven't seen it so far in 2021. Um, if it means if there if there's more likely an effect on on larger mega deals, uh, continuing that trend that we've seen around uh, FTC concerns over the past few years, I would expect the smaller acquisitions to continue where large pharma looks to bolster their pipelines and bring more resources to bear in bringing novel medicines to market. While large M&A deals can, can kill value historically reported, you know, 70% don't achieve their valuations, smaller deals can be very helpful as large pharma has uh, the capability, experience, and resources uh, to develop new drugs. One other factor that we've seen, um, just talking about the R&D spending slowdown that we've seen in recent times, there's been a question about whether or not that's connected with sort of supply chain disruption. And we've seen in other industries, you know, a, a lot of supply chain disruption affecting um, automobiles, microchips, this sort of thing. Does it seem to you like that will continue, that that's something which could affect um, the pharmaceutical and biotech industries in the coming period? Yeah, to be clear, I think there's been a slowdown in growth. So uh, from our report, the the growth is, is still there. It's just a little bit less than the, the prior year's growth. I do think that some of that has been due to COVID um, with, um, you know, the, the difficulty in just enrolling patients. Uh, the, the, the remote uh, training of physicians, the remote consent forms, uh, the ability to conduct trials in this very challenging environment has largely uh, come under control. The, the Some of the other challenges that we see with supply chains uh, from uh, the consulting work that we do for um, our many biotech clients, uh, there are some instances where uh, raw materials are still um, you know, essentially uh, being rationed, uh, you know, first come, first serve, where there's just not as much uh, capability to uh, conduct the amount of clinical trials that are currently underway. So I, I do think that um, there's another element to the potentially reducing the, the total R&D spend, and that is that innovator companies are becoming more efficient in how they spend their R&D dollars. Um, with uh, real-world evidence uh, trials uh, reducing uh, spend with more targeted therapies, targeting more personalized medicine. Uh, I think that, that that is in some way uh, improving the, the bang for the buck from the R&D money that's spent. Is that something that you could um, say a little bit about real-world evidence? That's a theme that we've seen recently here in the UK. The NICE, the HTA body, is reviewing its processes and they're looking to incorporate real-world evidence as part of that reform, enabling drug makers to use real-world evidence in a more structured way, in a more formal way. Can you say anything about the the future use of, of real-world data? That's obviously something that's um, also in connection with the, the, the pandemic. We've seen vaccines being rolled out widely and a lot of focus on collecting that evidence as they're being used in terms of safety and efficacy. Do you see real world evidence being used more in future and how might it be used? Absolutely. Uh, and I think that 
industry and regulators around the world are are figuring this out uh, as we go. Um, I think there there has long been a need for phase uh, and usage of phase four trials as um, companies get approval and they need to do uh, post-approval studies to ensure that as the larger population is is uh, administered the medicine that um, any unforeseen side effects uh, are tracked and uh, that's that's been the norm for uh, a long time um, however I think we will see that regulators and the industry with more robust data analytics will be able to take the somewhat artificial world of clinical trials in selecting a patient population administering a medicine and uh, testing for effect and and uh, being able to really be more innovative around how those trials are conducted so that it's more like the uh, the normal population, perhaps reducing the need for phase four studies. Um, but really, it's still pretty early days. There's been some success, and I do expect that to continue. Well, Lance, I think that's all we have time for today. Uh, it's been very informative. So yeah, thanks for taking a bit of time to speak with us. Nice to speak with you.